Hello and welcome to another Corn Stream. I am, of course, Joe Magician. And today, um, not so much a topic. Uh, going to be more of a Q&A style thing. I, I, didn't I didn't have a lot of inspiration this week on what I wanted to talk about. A lot of my thoughts are currently wrapped up in uh, the patron-only episode I'm making about Sand Kings and also about Lady Stoneheart and where she's going in the Winds of Winter. While I'm working on those, it seemed a little strange to, or a little counterintuitive, I guess, to, to talk about what I'm putting in those. So, um, yeah, I'll have, something, I'll have something better for next week. This week, not so much. I wanted to go ahead and say thank you. I got a bunch of um, super chats, it looks like, before I went live. Uh, Ramona Zamfir sent me 50 Ron, whatever that is. Thank you very much, Ramona. Uh, Missy Castle Dream 617. Uh, can't watch live today. We'll catch later this evening. Hope everyone has a fun, has fun. Happy Saturday. Thank you, Missy. Very generous of you. Uh, $25 from Maura Lee. She says, that's a show of love, support, and appreciation for all the fabulous content and merch. That's right, Maura. <laughs> she, I think she got merchandise, uh, some shirts and stuff like that. Thank you, Joe, for all you're doing to help us get these, get us through these times. Well, you guys are helping me more than I think I'm helping you. This is, uh, yeah. <laughs> been stuck inside for months working from home so that's 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 how it goes uh and 20 dollars from lemmy b says thank you thanks for being so awesome no thank you let me be um also had a paypal from danny mckay saying happy saturday with one of these thank you danny and actually uh 50 from uh jeffrey jeffrey stern um i think i talked uh, on a stream a little while back on an email i got from him Talking about Varus is the kindly man. He was just saying thank you for mentioning it and uh, responding to it. Thank you for the great content. So there we go. That's that's where we're starting. <laughs> that's where we're starting from. Uh, so as we're going through this, just sort of feel free to throw out questions. I have some prepared that I took from Patreon and Twitter and YouTube. Um, or throw them out there. We're just going to talk about random stuff for two hours. More or less. <laughs> Let's see here. Yes, Garth, the green colored ass waffle merch. Very mad. Actually, my favorite color is dark green. So a weird thing about this design is it kind of goes with everything. I've seen people with lime green, with orange. I think somebody bought a purple one. This one, I mean, obviously the blanket thing, the fleece blankets on a light blue and it, it just works with everything. So that that is uh, that is something just kind of works. with everything. Yeah, I love dark green. Yes. And please slam the like button. Uh, let's see here. What can we do for stuff today? I mean, obviously we got the the hats at 150 and 175, but I've been trying to think about what we should do for like 200. And I think I want to decide if we get 200 likes on the stream, I will I'll give away a um, I'll give away a shirt from my Threadless shop. So slam that like button, share, like, share, subscribe, doing all the things. Absolutely slam it. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Morley. Oh, Amy, you got the same? You got the dark green ass? There you go. Great taste. Wonderful. <laughs> scene by scene description of nudity in the show. God help us know him. I am not doing that. Uh, all right. So let's start off here. We got uh, a whole bunch from Patreon. Uh, <laughs> Morley, as I said, she left me about, I didn't count them, but it feels like about 15 questions. <laughs> uh, Eric, For Eric Ferg uh, left me a bunch. Some from Twitter, some from YouTube, from uh, the Patreon Slack and all that stuff. So, oh yeah, all the all the promo stuff. So if you want to support me, you can go to patreon.com slash Joe Magician. I have the 
patron only episode coming up soon an analysis of sand kings george r martin's most famous story before song of ice and fire the thing he got um the thing he was actually famous for the thing that made his career is sand kings so really enjoy that one much better than meat house man i've written about 14 pages so far talking about it, and i think it's about an 11 page story so uh things <laughs> buying a lot to talk about there and of course i mean super chats uh you can also send them to paypal i believe the links are in the description of this stream if you can't find them i didn't actually pin them this time because i forgot to i was trying to i was setting up my lighting it didn't go exactly right but lighting's hard especially when you don't have a background in like theater or movies or television or anything like that i'm just kind of reading youtube guides and trying to figure it out romanian lay like the like a hawaiian play is that how you pronounce that no i had no idea how much it is that's one of those funny things about super chats is they never convert it to um the dollars it's always in the currency that it was sent through so a lot of times i'm looking at these things and i'm like I don't, what is that? What, how much was that? I don't really know. The only way you can really tell is you can see how quickly the little, the little super chat thing, uh, decays. If you look at the one, actually one here from, uh, no, no, you can see that there's a little green bar going across it. The longer it takes, the more it is in dollars, I guess. I'm not really sure. Ah, $10. There we go. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I am not, I'm not up to date on currencies. Speaking of, uh, Five Canadian dollars, I think, from Nono. Past, present, and future are one. If Brand changes the past, what happens to those who went to the trees now never born during the timeline change? Uh, so this is about uh, if Brand can go into the past and people can hear him, is he actually changing anything? I don't think he is. I think the the, the whole subject of Brand's conversation with Blood, Blood Raven is that it's not that when you go into the past and people hear you, you're changing anything. George has written stories about um, where it is possible to change the past, but it's in a very bizarre way. Uh, his chess story, Unsound Variations, is like that. But the type of time travel he tends to do is the one where you can't, um, you can't change anything because yourself in the future already did it. So in the sense, before, like... <laughs> It's like, it's like a weird time pretzel thing. So there, there are, I don't think there are any sort of never born in a song of ice and fire, whatever changes to the timeline brand thinks he's going to make or has made has probably already happened. I thought about this a lot when you're reading back on blood Raven and he's talking about how he like went back and saw his brothers and his half brothers and like revisited the Blackfire rebellions. Clearly he would have tried to change something. And he couldn't. So I'm the implication there is that it's not that you can't go back and try and affect things. It's just that the you already have in terms of the timeline. So nothing changes. Um, and then if, in a way of attempting to change the past may make the future, which may be something hard for Bran that he realizes this and has to do it anyway, basically. But thank you for the super chat. <laughs> Bran needs a DeLorean's is OG. Well, that's one of those funny things is that uh, Back to the Future works on a multiple universe style time travel where when you go back and change it, I mean, Doc Brown literally draws the thing where there's the main timeline and then there's the one that goes off and then you're living in the other one and it kind of collapses when you undo it. It's 
It's very complicated. Time travel doesn't make sense because it's not real, <laughs> basically. I enjoyed the Avengers Endgame solution where they tried to say, like, they tried to explain it and then didn't. And it's like, ah, <laughs> right here's the career waste. What kind of mustards and toppings do you enjoy with this time pretzel? What are you, some kind of heathen? The only proper topping on a pretzel is salt. There's lots of salt. That's that's all you put on there. The brand DeLorean. Amazing. Amazing stuff. Yeah, the, the George plays with different kinds in his different stories. But if you go and read um, Under Siege, that's the story that has the most in common with what we see from A Song of Ice and Fire, where there's like a time agency that's trying to use mutants basically to go back in time and to avert like the civil war or like the dystopia they live in. And they're frustrated that it keeps sending these guys back and it never ends up working. And by the end, you realize it's because you can't change the past. And in fact, by sending them back, they are creating their own dystopia. So bummer on that one. Unfortunately, that would be very hard for Brand to realize, especially like if he has to be the one that pushes for like the destruction of his family or um, the, the chain of events that lead to like Ned's death, that kind of thing. Yeah. Turns out Back to the Future, not a documentary. It is, in fact, entertainment. <laughs> oh, yeah. European currency is cool. I like a lot. All the different uh, nationalizations or the regionalizations and the different names and how they look and all that stuff. I just don't understand them because I'm a stupid American. <clears throat> Donald Peoples says, will Ghost have to be sacrificed to get John back to his body? Ooh, ooh, <laughs> going a little hard on on, uh, on people's heartstrings today. So there, this, there is there's a widely held theory that um did not really make it did not make it into the show john as he says when he came back from the dead in the show spoilers he came back from the dead he said he went to basically the abyss or none or nothingness and then was brought back but it seems pretty clear that in the books john will uh take a second life within ghost upon his death um much in the same way people think that rob went into gray wind upon his death so how do you get him back out of a second life body? Well, the only way we've seen somebody kind of lose their second life is Varamir Sixkins when he takes Orel's eagle. But even then, Orel doesn't go anywhere. He's still in there. Varamir as well. He describes eating the heart of um, of his mentor and that he still feels and sees him sometimes. So the question is, how exactly do you kick a skin changer out of their second life? And unfortunately, the only way that um, it seems to be definitely to work is the same way that Varamir had his second life. His body has to die in order to um, to permanently leave it. Otherwise, he'll still be anchored to it. So that that gets to the theory that Ghost will eventually be sacrificed deliberately or not in order to get John back into his body. I don't know if George is going to do that necessarily. He does seem pretty hell bent on killing the direwolves, though. Um, the thing about skin changing and second lives and all that kind of stuff is that he's making it up on the fly. So if he wants to invent a mechanic where he gets John out of ghost without killing ghost, he definitely can. I mean, the Varamir prologue chapter is basically just George going like, uh, wow, I really didn't explain this really well for you guys. Let me, uh. Let me give you a, a brief rundown on how this works, but any of that can change. You can add more things like uh, like, for instance, with Beric Dondarrion 
there's sort of this idea between him and Thoris. There's a point at which you, sh- you can't or shouldn't bring a body back. And then they find Catelyn Stark's body and Beric gives her the kiss of life or whatever dies and brings her back. And Thoros is like, no, 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 no. This is a terrible idea. No, no, no. Don't do this. And it's like, George just keeps pushing the envelope on how far these things can go. Um, but very possible that if you want to get John out of ghost, you're going to have to kill ghost. Although I have, I in the past have uh, written a theory about this called Deus Ex Lupo, where I essentially argue that ghost is not a normal animal, that he's a skin changer himself, uh, that he has near or above human intelligence. He seems to be able to understand the human language, like not just like a dog where or a regular pet where they understand like keywords or sounds or anything like that, but he understands context and response to them. So it may be that George has set up ghosts to being overtly magical in a way that will let him separate the John from ghosts without killing one without killing ghost. I mean, I hope we don't kill ghosts. I mean, he's sitting right here. Ghost is, is a sweet boy and we all love him, but I, I want to say really don't count out how imaginative George can get with his, fantasy magical weirdness stuff he can do and does basically whatever he wants in almost every story he keeps pushing it to he tends to make the mechanics work for the story and he always he tends to hold back things until the end they make sense in retrospect but you you won't know them going in you have a pet theory pet pet theory (laughs) Uh, let me be that John will die again and live the rest of his life as ghost after the events of a, of a dream of spring. Uh, I think if, yeah, that's, that's a theory I've heard going around that it will be, or Arya will do that with Nymeria. Um, could be, could be, yeah, luminous rain. Um, John and a ghost seem to have a unique connection, even among his siblings, something very different from whatever is going on with Bran and summer and Hodor. He does, uh, he has his own thing, something that George, set up from the very beginning with how um without even like seeing each other john and ghosts were able to find each other like i went back and i did an analysis of it and john is the only one that hears ghost even though brand's right there even though there's tons of other people standing around them they're going over a bridge with hoof beats on the wood and stuff like that and somehow john hears something that no one else can which leads him directly to ghost which suggests that uh, when he heard Ghost, it was not an auditory thing, that it was this, uh, a warging thing that maybe Ghost reached out to him directly. <clears throat> Apparently, this is, this is going to be the get sad about John and Ghost stream. He's such a good boy. I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, let's see here. So, yeah, Carl Karsnark. The other, suge- the other suggestion people have is that Bran did it. That um, Bran from the future was watching that scene, and when John turned away, he sort of realized that he had to do it and then somehow made John turn around and look at it, look, ar- look around and find ghost. I like the idea that it's go- that was ghost himself, though. Their connection seems so unique and strange that it would make total sense looking back on that one. It's like, oh, yeah, from like the first second they were together. It's sad about ghost. Oh. I hope he doesn't kill any more direwolves, but it seems like Summer's definitely going to die. Uh, hedgehogs and cats are life are the direwolves psychic. Uh, I, le- I think at least Ghost is, uh, but they do have. This is one of those really strange things that that um, I think I talked about with Gray Area on a stream a while back. But there are these bizarre warging scenes where Ghost describes 
being able to see through the eyes of his siblings from afar. Now that sounds like, I don't know what that is, but apparently the direwolves have some kind of like psychic network between them where they can hear and see each other just by like, just by trying. It seems like warging. I'm not really sure what it is. And then there's the idea that, um, at some point they were disconnected. Like ghost couldn't see summer anymore when he was beyond the wall. And while this is happening, ghost John warging ghost experiences ghost walking through this like enormous ancient forest that kind of looks like the, um, the haunted forest, but it's actually not because after he walks through that forest, he finds Bran who's a weirwood and then they snack back to reality. And it turns out ghost is actually standing up on a cliff. So somehow the, the direwolves themselves have, I don't, I don't know what to describe it other than like some kind of like mental network between them. So I would, I would take a, a second look at those direwolves if I were you and um, look at their connections. Cause George has, they just put a lot of effort into saying like, these are not just normal animals being warged. There's something very different about them and the way they were given to these Starks. Uh, so let's grab a question here from uh, Patreon. Eric Ferg says, who wrote the pink letter? <gasps> the hotly debated. <laughs> the thing everyone has a theory about the pink letter. And no, I didn't get that. Um, that cold foam thing I was talking about on Twitter. I don't know what that is. Dunkin Donuts and Starbucks have been advertising it like crazy. So <clears throat> what is the pink letter? Let's start there. So the pink letter is a letter that Jon Snow receives in a dance with dragons that immediately precedes his assassination. It claims to be from Ramsey Bolton and Ramsey is making a bunch of demands of John. He wants uh, Theon back. He wants Jane Poole back. He says he has killed Stannis. He says he has his magic sword. He says they won the battle of ice. There's a whole lot of things going on there. <clears throat> now there has become some conspiracies about it because people have noticed that there are inconsistencies apparently with how Ramsey normally writes letters and which waxes he use and all these kind of things. And also some of the information that seems to be incongruent with things that we know that we think are going to happen in the, in the winds of winter, for instance, it seems very likely that Stannis is probably going to win the battle of vice against the phrase and the Manderleys because the Manderleys are probably going to turn on the phrase and join with Stannis. Um, also the umbers are out there. They seem pretty, pretty serious about making sure the phrase don't make it back. So how could that be true? If Ramsey says he has Stannis's magic sword, uh, there's, and then there's something about his, the way he writes, he likes to write with blood and he has a particular, uh, he has a particular writing style and he uses a different kind of wax than he normally does or something like that. So <clears throat> this has led people to, to wonder if it wasn't maybe somebody other than Ramsey wrote that letter. The theories go from Mance Raider um, to Stannis himself, Ramsey, sometimes even Roos, Barbary, Dustin. Uh, there's a lot of different, <laughs> just basically every character in and around Winterfell has been suggested as the true writer of the pink letter. I talked about this, uh, I think a few times on Maester Monthly, the podcast I do with these other Song of Ice and Fire moderators. And my thought on the pink letter is that Ramsey wrote it. It's Ramsey's letter, but not everything in it is true. Or 
he thinks they are true, but they are not. <clears throat> Why are we psychoanalyzing this imaginary letter? Because people are very bored waiting for the next book to come out. So they have taken every minor thing and turned it into a big mystery. So anyway, so why do I think it's Ramsey? Well, for one thing, if you look at what he asks for, he asks John for he wants his reek back and he wants his bride back. So the thing about the name Reek is that John Snow doesn't know who Reek is. He is not he is not aware that Theon's still alive. He isn't aware that he's been turned to this character. So asking John for Reek back makes no sense from anyone else unless except Ramsey. Like um and even the motivations get very strange. Like, why would Stannis send a letter to John to get him to come down to Winterfell, which would take weeks anyway? And will likely get him killed. The only person that makes sense to do it is basically it's Ramsey. And he's trying to bait John to come south to find him so that he can eliminate another Stark claimant to the uh to the throne of the north, basically, or the uh, lordship of Winterfell. But the things where it's um the things where the inconsistencies, like one of them is he says he wins the Battle of Ice and he has Stannis' sword. Well, uh there's been suggestions that Stannis is going to essentially make Ramsay think he won the battle of ice to gain entry back to Winterfell. He may have somebody show back up with his sword, maybe the Manderleys themselves as part of a ruse to gain entry. So that's, that's my thoughts on the pink letter. I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of theories out there, but it, it really only makes sense if Ramsay sent it. So there you go. You guys now know way too much about a letter and actually the, the, the name, the pink letter is just a fandom thing. Uh, it's not called that in any way. John doesn't question that it's from Ramsey. He he believes him because he's got, I think he's seen a letter from Ramsey before. He's like, oh yeah, this is the same guy. He's a creep. The Mance one is also very strange. Um, don't know why he would do it. Oh yeah, he also claims he caught Mance and that he caught the Spearwives and he skinned them. That seems likely because when you look at Theon's escape, uh, he's doing it with the help of the Spearwives Presumably they get caught after he and Jane Poole jump off the wall into the snow. Ramsey would probably torture them. He'll probably skin them like he does everybody. Sure. Makes all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, Aaron. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely Ramsey. Ramsey wrote it. I just let I think the more interesting part is why he believes the things that are probably not true. I think that leads to more interesting plots about what Stannis' plan is with the Battle of Ice, how he's going to try and take Winterfell, the fact that he already has Theon, um, and nobody else really has a good motivation for why they would try and get Jon to leave the Night's Watch, which will almost certainly get him killed. It all works for Ramsay. <sighs> and he just used different wax. Whatever. <laughs> Didn't Theon die when the Ironborn, Ironborn burnt Winterfell? No? No. <laughs> Theon's still alive. Uh, Nicola Jerkins says, I think somebody from the Night's Watch wrote the pink letter. Uh, why? Why would they do that? How would they even know what's going on in Winterfell? How would they know Theon has somebody named Reek? How would they know Reek and Jane have escaped? The, the Battle of Ice is happening. Like, there's no, there's no texting. Nobody knows this stuff. It has to be coming from Winterfell. Um, hey, Guilty Undertaker. Uh, see here. Question from No, 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 No. Could the Tattered Prince be a previous version of John Con and Aegon raising money in an army caped made of fallen foes like the Iron th uh, Throne and Swords? Attitude is similar to Connington too. Um, no. There's not really any sort of crossover between 
uh, Connington and the Tattered Prince in their behavior, in the way they talk, like appearance or anything like that. Uh, the only connection is that they're both cell swords and Essos, I guess. Like, I think if you want to look for what who John Connington and um, young Griff actually are, I think that they are sort of George's. I think he's like it's like a rough draft version of what if Ned tried to put John on the Iron Throne, because there's there's quite a lot of similarities between John Connington and Ned. They have similar ideas about honors, similar ideas about kind of like a fallen life. They. <laughs> They are both in love with um, kings and princes. I mean, John Connington's obviously in love with Rhaegar. Ned's basically in love with with uh, Robert. There, there's the two Aegons. I think it's. I think that's basically what it is. If it, instead of Ned deciding not to push, instead of tr- instead of Ned deciding to hide John, what if he tried to push his claim? I think that's what John Connington's supposed to be. Um, yeah, the five year gap version. I mean, not actually them. Thank you for the question. Um, I did think about young Griff being the tattered prince, but I mean, the only thing that really works in the favor of it is that he's from Pentos and that he uses disguises and that that's kind of it. Connington's just kind of like a, uh, like a broken version of Ned. That's what I think. Anyway, when I read them, I see almost the same character. If you read them side by side, uh, they have similar ideas. (laughs) Oh my God, Luminous Rain wrote the pink letter. Oh my God. Although actually, guys, want a real secret here? You want to know who really wrote the pink letter? George R. R. Martin. He wrote it. <laughs> he wrote it all. He wrote everything. He's all these characters. They are all the same person. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> John Connington and Tywin? Sort of. It's like... John Connington wants to be like Tywin. I don't think he actually is like Tywin. If he was like Tywin, then he would have burnt down. Um, he would have burnt down Stony Sept. It's it's an aspirational thing. I see your question from Ed Herenstija. Sija, Ed Herenstija. I am sure I got that one very, very, very wrong. No, Amanda did not write the pink letter. She writes a lot of great things, but not that. Um, uh, Joe, you said that Maddox story is probably what Unjohn would do to his back brothers, but don't you think the description makes no sound? Bloody beard, better fix ghost. Ooh, John worked inside inside ghost. Now this is some spicy tinfoil if I ever saw it. So, <laughs> ghost going on a killing spree throughout the night fort. Um, that is a creative idea. Ooh, I kind of like that one. Uh, if you guys don't, if you guys haven't seen it, me and Bookshelf Stud and San Rixian did a stream a while back on Halloween, I think like two, three years ago, where we talked about how there's so many connections between the night fort and stories like the shining and all these like creepy stories about nice watch brothers killing each other that perhaps in the winds of winter, um, these stories are beginning to be more than just foreshadowing. I mean, more than just like world building about how creepy the night fort is. Maybe there's actually going to be, a slaughter at the night fort and the obvious character to do it might be Jon Snow um, coming back from being inside ghost. The people that are running to the night fort are going to be the traitors, the people that stabbed him. So that'd be Otho Yarwick and um, what's his name? The pomegranate. Oh, what is his name? Can't believe I can't remember. His name. <laughs> uh, Bowen Marsh, Bowen Marsh, uh, Alistair Thorne, Alistair Thorne. Awful Yarwick, they're probably going to run to the Night Fort because that has recently been completed and Yarwick is in charge of it. Um, they're not going to want to fight a battle. John will track them down and kill them. 
kind of like a a revenge thing like which happened at the um at Craster's Keep similar sort of thing. But I like the yeah, that that's a really cool idea that um that the idea that he can that Mad Axe walks his, walks through the night fort and nobody can hear him because he took off his shoes. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Maybe that's like a, a wolf padding very silently, like Ghost is always quiet. I like that idea. Good one. Should write that one up. Make a good theory. Ah, uh, yes, everyone's saying Bowen Marsh. Uh, my memory, my memory let me down. Like, which asshole at the Night Fort are we talking about? Or in the Night's Watch? There's just so many of them. Hey, thanks, Annie Barry. Yeah, that was a lot of fun one. And uh, Sanrixian put up really cool art for it um, of John trying to John coming back from the dead and being colored like ghost with um, white hair and red eyes. And he's doing, I asked her to draw him. So he looks like Jack Torrance. It's really cool. Uh, let's see here. Oh, super chat here from the purple Lord, Leo, Anansi. What's my most contrarian, a song of ice and fire theory or belief, or what theory is the most accepted that you don't believe? Um, Ooh, those those are different questions. My most contrarian song of ice and fire belief is that um, Stannis is the worst and go team Renly. Although they're they're both kind of like shitty in their own way. I just have a lot more uh, sympathy and understanding of Renly's position. And I think he gets way, way, way too much hate from the fandom because people really love Stannis. Like there was a really good analysis the other day on Reddit. I posted it on Twitter. Where somebody went through and like uh, took apart Renly's life and looked at the different ways that he's been abandoned and mistreated and how he's kind of been left on his own and like makes total sense that he latched on to the um, that he latched on to the Tyrells because they, they were the only ones who cared about him. And reading some of the comments, a lot of people were like, oh, that's that's really good. I like the analysis of Renly. And then quite a lot more were like, no, that's not true. Renly's the goddamn worst. He's the devil. How dare you say this is the best? I'm like, oh. whoa, <laughs> like, OK, I guess so. Um, I don't hate Renly nearly as much as anyone else. I think him and Stannis are kind of equally kind of shitheads. Not really one better than the other. It's just that Stannis gets a lot of love from a, from a very particular group of stands. And what theory is most accepted that I don't believe? Ooh, accepted theories I don't think are true. Mm, that's tough. I'm, I, I tend to be pretty, um, although I, I read <laughs> like tinfoil and stuff on my channel, I tend to be pretty uh, orthodox in which, or uh, I have a very high bar for believing in theories. Um, theory accepted i don't believe i think maybe the one that's the closest to being accepted i don't think is true is Tyrion targaryen i don't think that i don't think that one's true at all i think george is playing with it but he's not going to do it but that one has quite a lot of um quite a lot of believers out there <clears throat> yeah guilty undertaker i think i said this on um on not a cast where it's like if you put stannis and renly together you would have a really effective awesome king but they're separated and they're um and they're at odds with each other so it ends up blowing up in each other's faces. Oh, uh, Lady Rosalie Valarian, Tyrion Targaryen. Yeah, that's the theory that um, Tyrion is actually the son of the Mad King Aerys and Joanna Lannister, that essentially the Mad King raped Joanna and Tyrion is the offspring. Uh, people point to the idea that he has, um, he has mismatched eyes, that he has lots of dreams of dragons, that there's tons of lines about, about Tywin going like, I don't think you're my son, that kind of thing. 
I think George is playing with the idea, but I don't think it's literally true. I don't think he is. Um, I think he is Tywin's son. Yeah, people. I I understand why it makes sense. I understand what people would get out of it. But I think the relationship of Tywin to Tyrion is stronger than having him instead be Aerys's son because he has nothing to do with Aerys. Like this is the this is the same problem that you have with a lot of like fake Danny uh, theories out there where it's like, oh no, she's uh, what is she? <laughs> she's actually Rhaegar's uh, daughter. Oh no, sh- I guess the recent one is that she's a nobody from Dragonstone. I, I sometimes it's hard to keep up with them. But the the main problems is that Danny thinks about Ares quite a lot and trying not to be like him, and it kind of like removes all that if none of those are true. It's like, so what's the point of that plot line? What's the point of having her consider how much she's trying not to be like Ares? How he's a bad example. Um, the opposite is true for Tyrion. There's there's Tyrion basically never thinks about the Mad King, so I don't really, I don't really get the point of it. Uh, who's Daenerys Targaryen? Daenerys Targaryen is Daenerys Targaryen. Wow. She's, she has a really good story on her own. She doesn't need a weird twist. <laughs> oh God. The chat is on fire. Like, uh, like King's landing with all the Tyrion Targaryen, Tyrion Targaryen stuff. Um, although that's actually one of the things that people complain about with RLJ is they're like, well, John doesn't think about Rhaegar. It doesn't come up. I think George is going to use that. Um, when John gets revealed to be Rhaegar's son in that it's not, it, it won't be personal. It will be personally impactful, but it will also change the dynamics between him and Daenerys. And I think, um, the show did a very brief version of how that will probably play out. Anyway, Tyrion Targaryen. Yeah, that's, that's the one that's the closest to being accepted that I don't think is true. It's not that I don't understand it. I just, there's, there's a, there's a lot of theories that logically makes actually. Yeah. Who just said that? With the Undertaker that said the same thing. Just because the theory is logically possible doesn't mean it makes sense within the story. Correct. I mean, it's fiction. Anybody can do whatever he wants. I mean, George can do whatever he wants, but will he? Probably not. Um, so let's see here. So there was a question from uh, Maura Lee. She said, I would like to know what you think about the Isle Faces of Hall, what role these two will have in the end game. So the foreshadowing for Hall and the God's Eye is that there's two specific things that happen. These are mostly from uh, Fire and Blood. Whoops, a daisy. Uh, so the first one is the battle over the God's Eye, where Aemon Targaryen and Daemon Targaryen fight on their dragons over the God's Eye while Alice Rivers watches. Ends up killing both of them. There's a story within the story that Daemon survived and ran off with, with nettles in the end. And it was like the end of the, uh, the Dark Knight Rises where Bruce Wayne's sitting there in a, in a, in a cafe sipping tea waiting for or espresso waiting for Alfred to show up. And that's basically what happened to Damon. Odds are they both probably died in that fight. Um, if there's an actual dance of the dragons, if there's a dragon fight over the, the God's eye itself would make a lot of sense. Um, the other thing that happens with the God's eye in Heron hall is uh, Adam Valarion during the dance of the dragons goes looking for the green men on the, on the, God's Eye Isle itself on the Isle of Faces. Supposedly, he lands there and asks them to help him. It's unclear if they if he actually did this or if it came up. But this is also a running plot line throughout the rest of the story. For instance, the last hero um, in the story of the Long Night went looking for the children to help against the others. Ends up losing everyone along the way. There's also the story uh, during the Andal invasion 
that there is something called the Weirwood Alliance, where apparently the Storm Kings went to the Rainswood Children of the Forest and um, joined them in order to repel the Antle invasion. Didn't do such a hot job, although they did avoid being uh, completely massacred out of existence. So I guess it kind of worked in a way. Um, <clears throat> so those are the two things that I think will come up the most if you're talking about what will happen in Harrenhal and um, and the Isle of Faces themselves. At some point, maybe somebody in the south will go looking for the children of the forest, remember the God's Eye, go to the Isle of Faces, see if they can find the green men. Um, maybe somebody on a dragon. That would be kind of interesting. Maybe Danny does it. That would be super cool. Or maybe uh, young Griff, although I don't think Young Griff would be weird because we don't have a POV on him other than Connington. So if somebody was going to do it, I would guess Danny, but you never, know, maybe John, maybe Tyrion or someone like that. Uh, and then for the battle over the God's eye, mm, it's unclear who would do it. It would have to be young Griff probably to steal a dragon to fight Danny or maybe the others. I mean, the show gave us that version where they, they killed Sarion and then, um, raised them into undeath. There is quite a lot of foreshadowing though, that the others will make it as far as the trident. Like Danny has that dream where she's riding on Drogon and she burns the usurpers all who basically look like the others. It's like Robert in, um, <laughs> uh, Robert in like, uh, in ice armor. It seems very clearly to be kind of a metaphor for Danny battling the others at some point, maybe at the trident. Although, my problem with that is the same one that I had when the show was um, I did that promo where they showed like ice and fire meeting at the Trident. And then there was like big thing of ice and like magma came up and stuff like that. It's like if the others make it as far as the Trident, they will have essentially exterminated the North. There'll be like no one left. <clears throat> so that would be my guess um, that George is using fire and blood and his tales of the dance of the dragons essentially is rough drafts. For things that will happen in the winds of winter and a dream of spring. That would be my guess. Um, especially because if you think about it, like in terms of if characters other than Bran wanted to contact the children of the forest, where would they go? Um, the only place that anybody thinks there are still children is maybe the God's eye. They have no idea about blood Raven's cave. They have no idea about um, the ghost of high heart. If she even is one, the Rainwood's supposedly empty of children of the forest at this point, like they're missing. So the only magical place left, if you wanted to commune with them, would be the God's Eye and um, the Isle of Faces. So and that is my thought on that. <clears throat> it was a success and then they didn't go extinct at that point. Uh, okay. Is that something I said? And I just totally forgot about it. Uh, Annie Barry says, is there a theory out there as to why Rhaegar named his eldest daughter Rhaenys instead of Asenia? He is trying to recreate the three heads of the dragon. Um... Rhaegar is an inconsistent, um, prophecy obsessed weirdo who makes a lot of very strange decisions that are contradictory and don't, and kind of tell you that he, over time he has switched plans quite a lot. Like, uh, there's initially, he thought he was the prince that was promised that, uh, his birth at Summerhall meant that he was that character. And then it's like, oh, wait, never mind. Maybe it will be my kid. Oh no, my kid came out a daughter. Okay, so now it'll be a second one. This Aegon kid. Oh wait, no, that Aegon dies. So it's I, I think people kind of like tune into Rhaegar, like doing inconsistent dumb things and say that like maybe it's part of like a grand conspiracy. I think it's just that he didn't know what he was doing. 
and he was trying to follow something that's super uncertain. <clears throat> uh, good point, Max Godspeed. He says, Adam's dad, granddad, also may have talked to the Yefer Quevron, the children of the forest, like people in Essos. Maybe he told him to, he was inspired to talk to the Green Men. Sure. Totally possible. And that's the thing about trying to get to the Isle of Faces and not the awesome co- podcast by Joe Buckley. Uh, the point is that everyone that tries to sail there either gets attacked by ravens or the wind blows them away. But if you're on a dragon, you can just land there. So way to go, Adam Valaria. <laughs> um, here, uh, Caitlin Kregel, who does Melisandre believe is Stannis's Nissa Nissa? Um, I imagine that has changed for Melisandre over time. I believe her current idea is that it will be uh, Shireen. Although he does have, she does have him stab the um, the Dragonstone statue of the Mother, I think, or the Maiden. I forget which one he does, but that's part of her his whole Lightbringer thing. He has him fake it with the statues. Um, maybe she'll come to believe that she's the one that has to die for Lightbringer, but I don't know. Uh, it seems pretty clear that Shireen's going to be the one on the chopping block, as it were. Yeah, prophecy is uh, is hard to follow. What's the what's the quote? It's like. Um, it will bite your prick off every time. So Rhaegar is just like an example of how hard that is to do and why nobody gets it because you're not supposed to. That's the, that's the way George uses it in the universe. Nobody understands it. Ali, <clears throat> uh, Rosalie Valarin, why do you think Melisandre has her sexy slash sexy? I don't remember the sexy part. Uh, painful blood raven experiences. Do you mean the things where she sees blood raven in the flames? I don't remember her having sexy blood raven experiences. What is what are those like Shira sea star? She's I think she's the only one that has sexy um, blood raven experiences, right? That she was like his paramour. Ooh, um, I'm going to assume unless you correct me that you're talking about when she sees him in the flames. Uh, so this that whole scene um, where she has to see the great enemy and then she sees blood raven and then she sees Bran. Basically, I think she sees them in the flames. And that's one of those things that uh, George or no, uh, Yoke Boy of Rio Westeros has made into a uh, made into a theory where he thinks that the connection between Melisandre and Bloodraven is that Melisandre is the child of Shiera Seastar and Bloodraven. Um, since nobody knows what happened to Shiera, um, he has a whole theory about how maybe they went to Essos fleeing from the end of the Blackfire Rebellions. Oh, she feels pleasure and pain. Dur- oh, <laughs> ah. That makes more sense. Um, I don't know. I, I I haven't really figured out why George has her feeling ecstasy and pain when she's looking in the flames. I'm guessing it's just like she feels nothing all the time. So that's the like the only sensation she has. Like she doesn't sleep. She doesn't eat. She's basically like a white at this point. But um, I do. Uh, I think that series called Melanie Sea Star by Yoke Boy. If you want to check it out, it's a pretty good one. Uh, that would be one of those one of the tinfoil theories out there that I'd be more inclined to believe than others, mostly because you know, probably put a, uh, a lot of effort in, and brought out a lot of interesting connections. But, uh, let's grab another question. Um, Gray Waste Tim on Twitter said, uh, "You covered both of the spooky trees. I propose covering the spooky grass." Ghost grass live stream. Not doing that, but uh, the Dothraki legends around it. It's growth in the Shadowlands. It's sudden appearance in the gardens of Karth and how it's connected to the warlock's power. So if you guys don't remember this, there's something called ghost grass, which uh, supposedly has been growing throughout Essos uh, coming sort of out of a shy. It seems like uh, the Dothraki fear it because it's these very, it's very long, tall, hard grass that their, their horses can't eat. 
so they fear it. And it's supposedly been um, just moving its way across Essos, replacing normal grass. And I think by A Dance with Dragons, we hear that it has started growing in certain gardens in Karth, despite being unclear how that happened. Um, so what does the ghost grass mean? What is what is it actually? Um, it's a good question because the others really don't have any connection with with like grass itself. Um, I, f- I remember hearing suggestions somewhere that like the, the pales milk glass thing, which is the same description you get for Dawn, that maybe there's some connection there. I, I don't really know. I think it's just supposed to be an idea that like almost like a timer going across Essos that, um, that George is using it to show us just like how close we are getting to the, the return of the others, like an egg timer sort of. Um, otherwise I don't, I don't really know what's going on with ghost grass. It is, I mean, it is a thing that invasive species take over places like, um, I don't know if you guys are friends of, I mean, uh, not friends. You guys watch CG pre gray. He did a, a whole video on tumbleweed and how it's taken over the American, uh, South and Midwest and how it displaces tons of plants and stuff like that. It's like, it doesn't have to be something magical for an invasive plant species to take over. A thing but i think that's the way george is using it it's like um it's a countdown to the others arriving especially because when you look back at like stories of the long night it apparently did happen in essos and other places as well <laughs> it's wheat oh you can eat wheat i don't know anybody from the midwest what's ghost grass well is there something like this is this like a real thing i remember when i lived in california uh, i lived there in a, in my, as a kid and there were these really long tall stalks of weeds that um that took over everything they weren't you couldn't eat them you couldn't do anything with them they just sort of um i never learned the name of them they were just everywhere i lived around the um is it the san ramon the um what's it called dublin that kind of area and all the fields out there were covered with this these like long hard weed things i don't know what they were called maybe that's what george was talking about i mean like that was one thing when I moved, I grew up initially on the East coast and then moved to the West coast for my elementary school years. That was one thing that really shook me. And like, I didn't understand what the hell they were. Um, you live in on the East coast and there's tons of trees, tons of grass, tons of bushes. And then you go out West to California and all of a sudden there's almost no trees. There's like no bushes. And there's just like these long, these like tall hard weed things that, um, they plowed under every so often. I don't really know what it is. Um, Japanese knotweed. Let me look that up. Uh, and I, re- I don't remember what it was called. It, I just remember that like everything out there in California was like so aggressive to humans. Like there were these um, these large prickled bushes with yellow um, with little yellow flowers on them. Um, oh, is it kudzu? I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah, there were. The, I don't remember what they were called, but. They had like spikes on them like this long and they were all over the place. And I remember like we'd be riding down bike trails and stuff like that. And if you fall off your bike into these things, like you would come out of those bushes bloody and just incredible. It was just completely not cool. And I don't know, maybe they had something what uh, George is doing with ghost grass. Um, oh, no, these things were like as tall as a person, whatever they were. I'd have to get pictures. I don't remember. <laughs> um that would be my guess on ghost grass that it's some sort of take on like some sort of Southwestern plant that he was unfamiliar with. Cause he grew up in New Jersey. 
And it's a sort of like a, an egg timer for the end of the world. <laughs> the closer it gets to Westeros, the closer the others are getting. Why there's a connection between them, I mean, like, who knows? Sorry, I didn't have a, uh, a cool answer on that one. I don't really know if there is one. I tried. That's why I'm not going to do two hours on it. Uh, let's see here. Roll up, see if we can grab some. Jay Moray, what are your thoughts on Fallout? Never played it, so I have no thoughts. Um, Guilty Undertaker says, could Viserys and Aegon III reuniting being a rough draft uh, for the young Starks reuniting? Um, hmm, could be, except um, the young Starks, Rickon's being hold, held on um, Skagos. I think Davos is going to bring him back. Um, I don't know. It could be. I mean, John would be overjoyed to see Rick on again, or um, if he could see Arya again. I mean, the living Starks will definitely come together at some point. Um, I think I said in my Edric Storm video that I think that that is a foreshadowing for um, Edric being bought from Lys, where he currently is, and um, and being used essentially to secure Storm's end. But I don't know. Could be. <clears throat> Do dragons have butts? Yes. Yes, they do. Uh, let's see here. Quite a long one from Isabel Harper. Um, I think that how strong never died out. Does continuing to be in female lines and illegitimate children lines. Um, I think Alan Villard is found by a lost Marine Bronze product that was lost. Oh, these aren't connected. Um, yes, I agree. I think that how strong never died out. I agree that they continue being female lines going from Lucamore to dunk to Brienne. Um, illegitimate children lines. I mean, like that. Yeah, Lucamore put out 16 kids out into the world. Surely some of them had kids and they kept going. Uh, that'll be, I'm going to do a theory video in the future. I think I figured out a way with the help of uh, frequent um, super chatter and commenter, Rona Zanfir, how to connect Lucamore to dunk. I think, I think there's a way to do it. I also like the idea that, um, <laughs> I've always said this about Robert Strong. The fact that nobody questions it is because like, I bet that like every couple decades, some giant guy shows up and says, I'm a strong. And everyone just kind of goes like, yeah, probably they were super slutty. <laughs> oh yes. Please slam the like button. Um, got 134 people watching 92 likes, 150 likes. going to put on my wizard hat, 175, my germ hat. And if we hit 200 likes on this stream, uh, I will give away a shirt from my Threadless shop. So slam that MF and like button. Um, hit the subscribe button. Hit the bell button for notifications. Um, if you're about halfway through this, let's see here. Let's see. What can people leave? Ask what? Can, what question can people answer in the comments? Um, actually, since we kicked off such a big conversation, uh, who wrote the pink letter? Who do you think wrote it, and why is it Ramsey? <laughs> Ooh, let's see here. Sorry guys, I'm scrolling up to try and find things that I missed. I, if I missed your thing, just keep uh, keep putting it in the chat. I'll get to it. It's hard to keep up with things while you're talking. Chat just moves so fast. Um, Rosanante says, on a way, analyzing a prophecy is like quantum concept. The more you analyze it, the more it changes. Sort of. It's more like um, the only way to shield yourself from it is to know nothing about it. Hey, where have I heard about somebody knowing nothing? Hmm. Anyway, that'll be a future video. <laughs> Sourly significant anyway, just creepy tobacco. Oh, that's chewing tobacco. Yeah. I imagine George knew a lot of people that dipped and thought it was gross, which is why he gives it to gross characters in the Song of Ice and Fire. <clears throat> oh, uh, Koi Venazi says, I think Dr. Aki had a vision of winter 
didn't know what snow was, so they thought it was white grass. Oh, that's a that's a interesting, um, fairly logical supposition. Yeah, sure. Maybe they um they didn't understand what snow was. Although they came from the Bone Mountains, and that's basically the Himalayas, would they not know what snow looked like? There's snow in the northern parts of Essos, right? I think so. I think Crow Food's daughter was talking about that. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe they think ghost grass is snow. Totally could be. Uh, uh, Miriam Awali, Awali, can the crypts be part of underground tunnels or cave systems? I am from Morocco. Here, old cities have underground rooms and tunnels for uh, protection in case of war. Absolutely. Uh, Winterfell itself was built on top of a giant crypt system. Uh, it appears to probably be pre-existed. I would guess it's like a children of the forest city like we see with uh, Blood Raven's cave. And they just kind of like took it over. I would guess that um, we also hear about the Gorn's Way, which is the massive tunnel complex that goes under the wall. It's kind of like branches out a million different ways so that um, everyone that goes into them basically gets lost. There's also the Rainwood Caves. There's the caves under, um, what is it, High Heart. So. I know um, Eliana of Girls Gone Canyon is very much a fan of the idea that all the different caves are connected into one system, and especially the um, the underground rivers between them. Totally possible. Um, George often likes writing about caves, so I would not be surprised. <clears throat> I'm going to answer dragons have butts. Of course they have butts. Why wouldn't they? Uh, Trinidad 1. Why does Prince Duran refer to Darkstar as the most dangerous man in Dorne. It is because he is a fake identity of the true king Viserys the Third. He's been harboring him for seventeen years. Um, not not so not so much on that second part. I think he's the most dangerous. Um, I think it's Ariane that calls him that. Um, he's the most dangerous man in Dorne because the Danes have historically been a a large thorn in the side of the um, Martells. They sort of command a lot of the loyalty of the Western half of Dorne, um, especially those going through the Prince's Pass. And if somebody's able to claim Sword of the Morning and sort of rally that part of it against Durand, that could be a, a very dangerous like civil war situation for the Martyrs to deal with, especially with the fact that there's already discontent about the death of Elia and um, Oberyn at this point. Uh, Darkstar with Ariane has a lot of Potential to essentially spark off a, a revolt that leads to Duran's death. Uh, I don't think Ariane would want to kill her dad or to have him overthrown, but she wants to be in charge. And Darkstar is all about chaos, basically. So I would guess that's what that means. Uh, yeah. Ah, okay. Let me see this one. Uh, Jant, what are the winds of winter predictions for uh, Rickon and Davos? Um, so it looks like Wyman Manerly's plan is that he's going to use Stannis to overthrow um, Roose Bolton in the phrase that they're going to fake losing the um, the Battle of Ice, probably take the phrase armor and stuff like that and show up to gain entry. And from that point, Davos will probably have retrieved Rickon. And as we as uh, talked about in the why of Wyman Manderley episode, uh, a lot of what his motivations are at this point is he wants Rickon in order to put him onto the throne of Winterfell and then probably use him as a boy lord 
for himself or his sons to strengthen the relationship between Winterfell and White Harbor. Maybe at some point, if he if he ends up killing all the Freys, maybe Rickon will marry uh, Wyla at some point or something like that. So that, I think that's Wyman's plan. I don't. It's probably not going to work out since he said it. <laughs> like if he says it, it's not going to happen, right? Um, but Davos's future in the Winds of Winter after retrieving Rickon, I've thought that he may be the POV that comes across the death of Shireen since it would hurt him the most. Um, maybe what happened off page, maybe Melisandre, like George will have a Melisandre chapter leading up to it. And then it cuts and then you find, have Davos discover it. I mean, he, I think Davos's um, journey through the winds of winter is going to be him turning against Stannis or her um, or breaking with him over the, the sacrifice of Shireen as to what Rickon's story is. Um, I think Game of Thrones mostly just killed him because they didn't know what to do with him. Uh, there's been suggestions that Rickon will rule in the end. I don't think that's true. It'll probably be Bran or Sansa at this point, to be honest. Uh, John doesn't seem the type to rule himself. Um, you know, there doesn't have to be anything bad happening to Rickon. But if George wanted to, um, I mean, having him being killed by Ramsay would be way less tragic than if he was killed in an other's invasion or something like that. That would be my guess. <clears throat> I, I really do think that Dan and Dave just killed off Rickon because they were just like, I don't know what to do with this kid. George will be more creative. Oh, thank you for the uh, $20 and a super sticker from Maura Lee with a little hair guy saying you are amazing. No, thank you, Maura. Very, very uh, generous of you. <clears throat> Let's see here. Uh, Dornish Dame says two of Lucamore's sons went to the Night's Watch with them. Do you think you have descendants among the free folk? Uh, definitely. Um, there's maybe uh, what's his name? Gren. He gets a lot of the same or small Paul. Maybe characters like that. Um, could be descendants of Lucamore. And it almost seems like Tormund is a little bit lusty himself. Uh, Tormund tall talker. I would guess if they made to the night, if Lucamore's sons made his way to the Night's Watch, I don't remember, I don't think they were gelded, right? Lucamore was, I don't think they were. Um, they definitely could have had kids while they were up there. That seems to be a common theme among the Night's Watch brothers. They very often do break their vows. They just cover it up. <clears> hmm. <throat> Uh, Lady Rosalie Valarion in the show, Danny destroys the calls. Do you think she'll bother with this in the books or did D&D just want to get their tick quota filled for that season? The tick quota is a very important thing. Okay. Very important. They get their correct amount of nudity per season. Uh, um, will she kill the calls? Hmm. That is, that is an interesting question. Um, when she comes across the Dothraki in the Winds of Winter, I mean, in the Dance of Dragons, it's while she's on Drogon. So she would have to be off Drogon and in some way, um, like captured. I imagine Dane would go with them more willingly. Uh, her going to the Mother of Mountains has been, um, to see the Doge Kaleen has been, has been, um, hinted at for quite a long time. I would guess that that was a, um, a George insert. Not, not necessarily the killing of the calls, but that she's going to go to uh, base Dothrak and meet the Doge Kaleen and um, end up somehow rallying the Dothraki behind her. Because if you were writing any story from where it picks up at that point in Game of Thrones, like you just want to move her west. She already has like, she already has Dothraki. She already has the Unsullied. She has reasons to go west. 
he would just move her there. Um, it seems like a weird side quest for her to do if that wasn't something that, um, that George is going to have her go through with. So that would be my guess. Oh no, Cal Pono's dead. Bummer. Oh no. Their shithead call dies. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Morley is the super chat champ. She just throws them out there like crazy. Um, hmm. Uh, let me grab one from, uh, from Patreon. Uh, let's see here. Aaron M the mistress of hammers himself. Yeah. Uh, she asked, I'd love to hear what you would pick as Gurm's most difficult challenge in finishing wins. Is it too long? Did the five year gap screw him too much with the character's ages? Are you thinking some of his material, but he doesn't play well. 20 years later is when he started it. Um, so what is George's biggest problem for why wins winner isn't finished? Oof. I think that uh, there's a there's an interview or a panel discussion that he gave with Stephen King at a college or something like that a few years ago, and him and King are talking about in about their writing styles and how they do it. And um, George just kind of nonchalantly asked Stephen King, like, how do you write so much? Like, how do you get it done? And King goes on to tell him, well, every day I have a certain amount of words or pages I write. Um, I don't care if they're good or not. Um, I just write them. And then when it comes time to publish them, I let my editors in my publishing house to tell me which ones they want to sell and which ones they don't. And he doesn't really concern himself with like trying to write the perfect story all the time. And George is like visibly shaken by this. And he's like, wait, what you do? What you don't like? I think the quote is, he says, um, you don't stay up all night. Like, rocking back and forth thinking about how your story isn't perfect and your legacy and like how you need to do like the perfect thing. And Stephen King's like, what? No, I just write, I just write for fun. And then sometimes they're good. And sometimes they, um, sometimes they get published and people like them. And George is like flabbergasted like this. So I think that is George's biggest problem with finishing wins a winter and a dream of spring. It's that, um, for him, he feels that, a Song of Ice and Fire is going to be his legacy, the thing he's remembered for, probably the last thing he'll make. And he wants it to be perfect. He wants it to be the best. He um so he's constantly tinkering and going back and forth and trying to rewrite things so like the best thing ever. I mean, the I know his wife Paris likes to tease him by like calling him the American Tolkien. Uh, I think the the quote was like her favorite thing to say is like, oh no, can the American Tolkien uh take himself away from his computer to take out the garbage, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's George's problem. And, um, he wants the winds of winter and a song of ice and fire to be perfect. And they never will be. And he just kind of keeps chasing that dragon as it were. I mean, yeah, <laughs> Stephen King did do a lot of cocaine. He doesn't do it anymore. Um, he just has a quota and when he can't think of a good idea, he thinks of a bad idea and writes it anyway. George doesn't like writing bad ideas. Yeah. I mean, he's written a lot of crap, but that's basically his point. It's like, I write a ton and some of it will be good. I don't have to make every part, everything I write the best it's ever been. Sometimes that will just happen. Actually, that's something that comes up with sand Kings. Um, as I've been reading it, if you, if you read dream songs and you read him talking about sand Kings, he's kind of like, so this is my most popular story. He's kind of, uh, not super enthused about it, which is kind of funny. He goes on in the same section to talk about other stories that he's written that he feels much more strongly about that he thinks are better. And he's like, well, 
Sand Kings is the popular one. And it's just kind of like a difference in perspective. <clears throat> well, uh, Curtis Frank says, I expect perfectionists are putting out crap, then you should be putting out nothing at all. It's a difference of perspective. Like I can spend like what you're making them for and how long it takes. Like I have the same problem as George sometimes where um, I don't want to put out videos that that aren't like the best thing they can be. But at a certain point, like, I don't know, you just have to do them. (laughs) Uh, And that's one of those things that I I think that people rag on George too much. Or in terms of like, you're not writing the winds of winter. You need, why aren't you, where is it already? And it's like, well, he's been trying to write it for like 10 years at, or like 12 years or something about it at this point. Sometimes you need to work on something else in order to like free up your brain basically and, and come up with good ideas while you're not just like smashing your head against writer's block. So um, everyone has a different process. I mean, his isn't working at the moment, but that's sort of how he tends to write where it's like a long grind followed by these short spurts of enormous production. <clears throat> Sorry, I think that's I think that's his biggest problem. It's not something structural about a song of ice and fire. It's that at this point it has be, it has defined his life. So he wants to make sure that the quality of the series it matches um some kind of legacy for himself or some a high standard of perfection, which makes him con- consistently rewrite it and um tweak it. Uh, let's see here. Oh, this is from uh, YouTube. Uh, Thunderclap says, have you seen the film is being made based on Gurms in the Lost Lands? So this is one of those things that he announced recently that people are very, very, very upset about. <gasps> oh, my God. Another one of his stories is being <laughs> adapted. He's like not involved with it. Um, but yes, I have heard about it. Um, I am confused or maybe confused is the wrong word. I'm a little bit like side eye about it. Not because like, oh, no, it's another story of George's that's getting turned into a movie. It's just like I've read The Lost Lands. I actually went back and read it again this morning after getting this question. It's it's short and it's okay. It's about a a character named Gray Alice, who is like a skin changer kind of thing. And it's kind of like don't it's a story that's basically like um, like the monkey's paw where it's don't get what you wish for, because if you do, it will be bad. And it's a fairly like isolated story. Um, it's like not his best. It's yeah, it's short. It's got weird mechanics. Um, I'm trying to be diplomatic about this. I, I don't know. I, I didn't think much of it when I read it. And I was like, oh, this is the one they're adapting. Really? I don't know. It's um, it features werewolves and skin changing, actual skin changing. Like in A Song of Ice and Fire, he does. He has the style of skin changing where it's like your mind goes into an animal but he has another style of skin changing. He likes writing about where if you take the skin of a werewolf and you put it on, you become a werewolf. Uh, he puts that in the skin trade. That's, that's also, as I said, into the lost lands. Uh, he kind of goes back and forth between them, which one he's using. And I don't know. There's not a lot. There's not a lot there. Um, I saw the director is attached to it. I think is responsible for mortal Kombat. So, <laughs> don't have high hopes for that one do not have high hopes for it I mean, it's it's a final story it's just like i don't know uh a lot of his works are pretty had hard to adapt and i think that one's not gonna be great but you never know maybe it will oh i think he's also responsible for resident evil so you know looking forward to that one it's a fairly 
it's got it's got violence it's got sex it's got a moral story to it it's got um obvious villains and a character named gray alice who is fun i guess um that's kind of it it's only like 10 pages long or something like that oh good luck with that one <laughs> uh yeah i would not be i would not be his projects have made so much money recently from song of ice and fire that people are just mass adapting all of his other stories. And it's like, good luck with that one. Uh, Sasa K, uh, in the patron Slack, she said, silly question. Do you have a favorite house sigil? Hers is currently man Woody. Um, then she went on to apologize. So she's asked this question before. I don't, you, I don't know. <laughs> so do I have a favorite house sigil? My favorite house sigil is house blackwood. Um, actually the original house Blackwood sigil is really cool. It got retconned, I think in a clash of Kings or a storm of swords, um, in order to, both of them are really interesting. The, the weird with the Ravens around it and the color scheme on it. That is my favorite. Um, a lot of them, are, I don't know. A lot of the sigils don't really do much for me. Um, they're basically like very simple little images or they're like telling some finer story about them, but they're. Not really. I don't know. I don't find a lot of them like super interesting or super cool, to be honest. Um, man, what is interesting one with the uh, the skull with the crown on it. <laughs> I think my favorite, most ridiculous one, though, is House Coharis. I think I called it House Ghost Rider in my, uh, my House Strong video where it's like skulls and chains and fire and stuff like that. That one's the most over top, I think. But I think House Blackwood is probably his best designed one. <laughs> oh, you're not a, just a fan of House Money because of the name. Interesting. Isn't there a guy? Hang on. What's his name? Isn't it Dick on man? Woody? Oh yeah. Good call. Let me be. Um, dunks is also a really good one. Got that one there. Um, yeah, I would say my, my favorite official house to Joe's house, Blackwood, but the unofficial is definitely dunks. Dunks is great. Dick on man. Woody. Isn't that his name? Yep. Dick and man. Woody. I see you, George. <laughs> um, We'll see, Bob. I'd love to see all these side products. Unfortunately, he doesn't feel as strong as Ice and Firefield. The rest won't be as good. He's basically like not involved with most of these side projects. Like it's just he sold the film rights and he's quote unquote an executive producer, which is just a film credit for him at this point. Like he's not actually involved with like the filmmaking or anything. <laughs> Dick on the chickens on cornfield. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Um, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> Rubs the lotion on skin or gets the hose again. Yeah. There's a weird scene in, in the Lost Lands where Grey Alice opens up her uh, her cart and there's an entire like wardrobe full of these animal skins. And then you realize that it's because she essentially went around and I guess there's like wear eagles and like wear bears or whatever like that. And she's essentially caught them and skinned them. And now she wears their skins. It's uh, it's it's a gruesome story. <laughs> <clears throat> George does love his dick jokes. There's a nonstop parade of dick jokes throughout the song of ice and fire. Uh, let's grab another one here from um, Eric for Eric Ferg. He had another one about Winterfell. I guess he's very much interested in what's going on there in the winds of winter. Uh, who killed little Walter at Winterfell? This is another one of those ones where it's like another minor mystery that um, people go like crazy for trying to figure it out. Well, I think this one's pretty simple. It's obviously Big Walder. Big Walder killed Little Walder. Um, when they find him, he's standing over the body covered in um, Little Walder's blood. And he has good reason to do it because uh, Big Walder spends a lot of his time talking about exactly how far he is 
from being the head of House Frey. Um, and there's also quite a lot of backstabbing in House Frey, particularly from like Blackwalder. But all of them, they're ba- there's too many Freys and there's not enough um, of the crossing to go around. So they essentially are incentivized to start killing each other. So I think that's what happened there. Big Walter killed Little Walter. I mean, little yeah, Big Walter killed Little Walter um, in order to push himself up further in the line of succession. One of the downsides of uh, old Walter's big old army from his pants strategy. Um, all those kids and grandkids, they're all going to fight over your, your um, over their inheritance. And this is just like the start of it. Plus, Little Walter's a creep. Or Big Walter's a creep. So, yeah. He definitely killed him. Um, well, he's a kid. I mean, he's a kid, Lady uh, Rosalie. I mean, like, I don't think he's like an expert murderer yet. This would be like his first one. Uh, let's see here. Grab another one from, from Maura Lee. She said, um, do you think we'll see Uncle Benjamin again and get more backstory on the others, what they truly want, etc.? Um, so, I have two questions in one there. Will we see Uncle Benjamin again? I would think not alive. I'm pretty sure Benjamin's dead. I don't think he's cold hands. I mean, there's that uh, people went and found the manuscript for a dance with dragons where his editor and go Roel asked him, wrote a note saying like is cold hands Benjamin and George wrote back. No. Um, so I don't think he's cold hands. If he's alive, I don't know how he could be alive at this point. Um, I imagine he's just dead and it would just be maybe George, maybe John will see him as a white at some point or something like that. Uh, for as to, will we get more backstory on the others? I think definitely, uh, brain is set up as the exposition machine of the winds of winter and a dream of spring His uh, access to the weirwoods will probably lay out pretty close to the show in terms of how he's going to end up looking through the past and discover how they were created and that kind of stuff. Um, and as to what they truly want, uh, this is actually Eliana of girls gone. Canon put this in a, um, a patron only episode a while back for, um, on my Patreon where we talked about the idea of cripples, bastards and broken things and how we pointed out that we actually talked about this recently too. So this comes to mind, uh, how so many of the worst things in Westeros comes from the, people feeling aggrieved about inheritance, especially nobles. And like, I think one of the biggest examples is Rob versus John where they grew up as best friends. They loved each other, but it was that time when Rob said that you can never be the Lord of Winterfell. You're a bastard. And then John freaks out and he almost kills iron Emmett because he's in such a raid. Like he, he sees red and then he wakes up and he's almost killed him. They had to pull him off. And while John was screaming that kind of, anger and passion that can come from um, the betrayal of, of that culture and the way that so much of their self-worth is derived from which titles they have, which, which castles they rule and stuff like that could be something that could be very easily manipulated by the children of the forest into um, making like a Faustian bargain with them being like the devil at the, uh, at the crossroads empowering magician Faust into, um, uh, I think like the biggest example of that in, in the Song of Ice and Fire besides Rob and John, though, I think it's obviously uh, Stannis and Melisandre, where his feelings of inadequacy versus uh, versus Robert and how him being denied what he thinks he, what he thinks he deserves has um, 
has made for <laughs> has made him turn to Melisandre to use magic she doesn't understand to try and get the throne. And you can probably see that as a parallel to probably what to what happened with the others initially. Like, I don't think that the others, when they were first created, understood what the children were doing with them. They probably just understood that they were um, giving them magic in some way that would help them get what they want. That would be my guess anyway. Um, yeah, that's a patron only episode. Uh, Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things with Eliana. So that would be my guess. Too much caffeine? Ooh, I hope not. When I have too much caffeine, my heart starts pounding. <clears throat> yes, all waters are creeps. Hashtag all waters. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Mm. Yes, see, Bob, the uh, show writers did the Benjamin is cold hands thing. I didn't really. Uh, no, no, I didn't like that. I didn't think it was very good. Um, see here. A Rosalie Valarian, which hidden identity theory apart from John and uh, young Griff is most likely to be true apart from uh, John and Fagon. I mean, Brienne. Brienne being Dunk's descendant is <laughs> the, uh, the hidden identity theory. That is by far the most likely to be true. It's basically canon at this point. Um, I mean, there's less there than RLJ, but the idea of her being connected to Duncan the Tall is um, a fairly significant hidden identity theory. I guess it means you know, like characters who are actively prevent pre, uh, pretending to be someone else within the story. Um, I imagine there's quite a lot of theories that like everyone might be Arya. From uh, from the outside perspective, it's like, where did she go? Which characters were they? And like people trying to track her down. Um, ooh, what's a good hidden identity theory? Um, I like the one that uh, me and uh, Brendan Beefish came up about how something a little more maybe Illyrio Mopatis's not dead wife Sarah. I think that one makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't. Quaith is the other one everyone speculates about, but um, I don't really know. I don't know. None, none of them really make sense. I think George like does fake out sometimes with mass characters. Like there's a uh, Morna who's a, a wildling priestess or something like that, who wears a weird mask. I don't think she's actually anybody. She's just wearing a mask. Oh yes. Uh, Sorella and Alaris. That's another good hidden identity one. That one's probably, that one's probably true. <laughs> then whose hand is he keeping his bedroom? I don't know. He's a Lyrio. He's a weird guy. He's a very weird guy. So, you know, <laughs> Don't under don't underestimate just how weird Lyrium of Pattis is. Quaith, yeah, I think Quaith is just Quaith, basically. She's uh I've heard some really fun theories that she's Danny from the future or something like that, who time traveled back in time, and that's why she, her eyes water when she sees her. There's also like, what is it? Rayella is Quaith, Ashard Dane is Quaith, everybody's Quaith. It's one of those things that the fandom does where like when a character dies in like mysterious ways. They just kind of like go down the list of characters whose identities are disguised in some way and just like tries to match them up. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Curtis Franks, the trouble with most likely is it also is less interesting to fan of at this point. So yeah, Brienne Dunk is a, it's technically a hidden identity theory. That's probably true. Sorrel and Alaris, that one's seems to be pretty true. So those are my favorites though. I mean, uh, Brienne being related to Dunk. Everybody's tear. Everybody's Quaith. You in the chat. You might be Quaith. You just don't know it yet. Let's put on a weird mask and start talking nonsense. There's also theories that Benjen is everybody, that he's Dario or it's Euron. And I don't know. It's like, okay. Sure. Why not? Um, 
Let's grab another question here. We only got about 20 minutes left. So anything you guys, if, if I missed anything, if I overlooked your question, uh, keep throwing them in the chat. You can at me, bro, and I will uh, I'll get to them. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Catherine Furseth on Twitter asked, Matt, please talk some on House Dane. What is the origin of Dawn, the house words, their purpose in the fight against the Lou long night? I decided to do some voices for that one. <laughs> uh, so what is the origin of Dawn, uh, their house words, their purpose in the fight against the Lou long night? I go back and forth on this one. Um, Rio Westeros two weeks ago was talking about House Dane quite a lot, and they were talking about how maybe they're like the original house of, of Azor Ahai or the prince that was promised or whatever. And Dawn is the original light bringer. I think <sighs> I don't know about those. Um, because the seat of power for like all the civilizations we hear from, all the fallen ones that have been destroyed over time in in um this whole world were in Essos or around a shy, um, around Karth and something like that. Like Westeros has pretty much been like a barren outpost for most of its history. Um, the idea that like the most power, like the heirs of one of the most powerful families or whatever would be in like Dorne of all places is something I kind of struggle with. I tend to think that maybe like, especially because we see Danny's vision where she's running through that hallway and all those Lyrian looking guys with the different colored eyes have like their fire swords or something like that. I wonder if house Dane is like, like a lost colony or something like that, or like a, um, an offshoot of like maybe like some royal guards or something like that. Uh, one thing you can definitely analyze with House Dane though that I find really interesting is you can connect them to Lord of the Rings. And um, especially because the story of how they got there is very similar to the, um, oh God, the, the Danes. Hang on a second. Um, the New Moronians. Uh, they followed a falling star to their magical uh, star colored island. Um, and from there, it's like a, a fallen civilization over time. Then it sank into the sea. Um, one of the names of one of the fallen kingdoms that, uh, Aragorn ends up being king of is called, was called Arthur Dane for a while. Arthur Dane, Arthur Dane. Um, I'm going to guess that in George's mind, like there, there's some random offshoot of, um, of his version of the Numeronians, which seemed to be like the great empire of the dawn or whatever. I don't think that they are. I don't think they're like the guardians of like the last scions of an ancient or an ancient and powerful house or anything like that. Um, but Dawn could very easily be like a relic from an ancient age. That is something that comes up quite a lot in um, in Lord of the Rings, where like just a random sword that has survived for thousands of years, which used to be common when they were made, are now like exceptional. Uh, that happens with um, like all the weird elven swords and the, the swords they find in like the barrows and stuff like that. Um, I'm guessing that's George's take on it. Basically that they're supposed to be like a last vestige of some fallen, uh, ancient and powerful Numeronian like civilization. It'd be kind of funny if Don like wasn't anything special, but it's only special because of like a loss of technology over time. Uh, what is their purpose in the fight against the new long night? I don't, I don't really know. Cause they haven't, they haven't really done a ton. Like people love pointing out like Danny's part Dane. Oh my God. She's the Dane heiress. And it's like, is she like, that doesn't really come up. The, the, the biggest example is that 
like Jora or uh, Barrison thinks that uh, she and Ashar Dane have like similar eyes or something like that. Oh, Sting was the letter opener. There we go. Um, well, if you want to reread Lord of the Rings, they'll be covering this in the Lord of the Rings show. They're doing like what the second age or something like that. So we're going to be seeing a lot of these kind of characters and a lot of this, uh, the backstory from the Numeronians and when they came to uh, Middle Earth after the destruction of their magical isle. Um, yeah, I agree, Corey Frey. Um, Starfall, it seems it, it looks ready made to be like some part of an ancient Valyrian trading outpost or something like that. Although the Danes are not are not Valyrian, but they are related to them somehow. George answered a question on that to that effect, where it's basically like they have a common ancestor, but the Danes are not from Valyria. That kind of goes to the um to that idea. Uh, what are their house words? George just said he's going to put them in there. Uh, that these they're going to be revealed, which I'm guessing at some point will have some sort of lore reason. But in terms of like where they are in the current story, there's not a lot left with them. There's Edric Dane. And then there's kind of just Darkstar. Um, the others members of House Dane have not even appeared on the page yet. Unless you count Ashara Dane and Chloe's theory that she's in the neck or something like that. I don't know. It's not like they're a powerhouse house like the Hightowers who hasn't done anything yet. It's just like they've got so little. Um, the only the only interesting thing they have is Dawn. But I t- <clears throat> one thing I have a problem with the idea that like Dawn is going to be Lightbringer and that'll be important thing is that George kind of makes fun of this in A Song of Ice and Fire, that idea when he has John standing on the wall in that dream where he's he's covered in ice armor and he has like two flaming swords and he's swinging them around and he's killing the whites as they come up and stuff like that. It's like I don't think A Song of Ice and Fire is going to be like that. Like I don't think the key to ending the threat of the others is going to be a magic sword or like one magical hero who's a better swordsman than anyone else. And they have like the MacGuffin sword is the, the way to stop them. Like John isn't even that good of a fighter. Um, and here he has a magic sword. Like what does Don do for him that long claw wouldn't at this point, we don't know much about Don. It's like got a different color, I guess that's kind of about it. Um, I know I, I really like house Dane. I think they're interesting, but, in terms of like, what are they going to do going forwards? It's like, other than joining with, uh, with other than Darkstar doing something interesting with Dawn and like joining young Griff or Edric Dane showing up, becoming sort of the morning. It's like not a lot going on there. So sorry. <laughs> I think they, I think the Danes would be an excellent protagonist in a different series of fantasy books. Like, um, yeah. But I don't think George's doing that. He focuses way too hard on the Targaryens and the Starks for the Danes to be like the secret key to the end of the story. I don't, I don't think that's happening. <clears throat> Guilty Undertaker. Which would I rather try? Wine and Manderley's meat pies or cold hands roast pork? Uh, well, it sounded like the meat pies were pretty good. So in terms of like taste, I guess Wine and Manderley's. Everyone thought the those pies tasted pretty good while his cold hands roast pork was pretty gross. I don't know if it's better or not that human flesh tastes better. Uh, what a weird question. I don't know. Um, yeah, sure. Wyman Manuel's pies. Sure. Oh, I'm going to forget about that question now. Um, Kath, Caitlin Craigle, what role will Sansa's amethyst hairnet play in the winds of winter? Um, hmm, I don't know. Um, I haven't really thought about that. The foreshadowing for, for Littlefinger is he's going to get his head chopped off and put on a stake outside Winterfell. 
he gets poisoned, that would be, I don't really know. I mean, who would Sansa want to poison? Other than Littlefinger, I guess. Uh, Joffrey's dead. Hmm. Uh, let's see here. Pipeweed. It's obvious George is a huge uh, nerd about language in general. He uses etymolog- etymological glue to build parts of his world. But to my own wonderful, I find it interesting that the Irish word Durin in the Gaelic root of a word I'm not going to pronounce, meaning exile. Also, Ashto, meaning of Durandon is Pearl of Pearls. <sighs> I, I, I really want to pump the brakes on terms of connections that people find with this kind of stuff where um he he is not a genius that knows everything and every meaning of every word in every other language he doesn't know like every ancient myth and legend he doesn't know like all these other kind of things and it's like just because you can find a connection doesn't necessarily mean he made it you know um uh he's pretty the Gaelic ones are more likely to be correct because he plays with that a lot. Uh, he likes Gaelic myths. Uh, obviously the story of Bran, uh, Bran the blessed and the, the idea of like the talking head and stuff like that. Like those he's clearly referencing. It's just like pump the brakes a little bit on in terms of like what he knows. He is just, he is mostly just like a fan of comic books from New Jersey and uh, of popular science fiction and fantasy. He is not a world renowned scholar on these things. That was my rant. I don't know. You, you, everyone, you can find connections and things that aren't meant to be there. Like people ask him about this stuff all the time. And his favorite quote responding is like, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Not everything's a, not everything's a symbol or a meaning or a reference to something just because it's in your head. Sometimes you came up with those and not him. Um, let's see here. Let's grab another. We've got about five minutes left here. Oh, hang on. What did I do with my phone? How did I lose my phone? I haven't gotten up. <laughs> How did I do this? Um, okay, I'll just grab another one. Uh, let's see here. From uh, Joan Evans on Patreon. Danny drank the bad drink, so she corrupted. Could this cause her to go mad? So this is talking about the shade of the evening. We talked about this with um, Pro Food's daughter. I think at two weeks, two weeks ago or something. I think that was it. And... um. The effect that it's had on Danny, the effect it has on Euron and Aaron Greyjoy and other characters. And I do think that a major role of the Undying on Danny and why George put them in along with um with uh the shade of the evening is that it that experience has made Danny far more paranoid and far more prophecy obsessed and trying to like fit everything into um into fitting patterns that the undying told her and the visions she saw than she would have before. Um, and I don't know if she's corrupted, but it's definitely expanded her mind in a way that George is exploiting to make her, um, yeah, far more paranoid, far more untrusting, far more likely to believe, um, like prophecy and magical things than she would before. Like for instance, she takes the words of Miri Mazdor as like, a canon prophecy of things that will happen to her. And she, she like holds on to the idea that she cannot get pregnant because Miri told her that, but it's like, was Miri giving a magical prophecy or is she basically like saying in a very elaborate way? Never. Cause it seems like she was doing the latter, but Danny has interpreted the other way. And that way she's has a lot of connections to previous Targaryens. Uh, we know Rhaegar did this kind of thing. Quite a lot of them, 
um, led to their own dooms by trying to essentially thinking they were the chosen ones or they were chasing prophecy or they're going to save the world to their, um, to their detriment. Like that happened. I think that happened with Aegon the fifth. Uh, we know Ares the second had some ideas about that. Um, it's, it's kind of a running theme in their family. And it seems like house the undying for not for better or for worse for worse has, uh, done unkind things to Danny's mind that, um, Corruption's not a bad word. Maybe poisoning is the right word. Um, so that's that's kind of what I think what's going on there. But good call, Joan Evans. Also, uh, good call, Kate and Gregor. How do you think Danny will meet Euron in real life? That's one of those things that I think George is setting up is that Euron's love of shade the evening and the fact that Danny's already had it and that experience changed her life afterwards will probably be a thing he exploits in the future. <laughs> Give you. <laughs> No, Sarah, I'm not giving you all my direct phone number so you collectively text me. It wouldn't work anyway. I have my phone on silent. Oh, I dropped it. It's on the floor. That's where my phone went. <laughs> Got it. Oh, good. Netflix wants me to watch Our Planet. No, I will not. Thank you for the recommendation. I've actually been watching Vikings, Black Sails, and The Expanse. Uh, so we only got a few minutes left. So you guys have any last ones, throw them out there. Uh, you can try and grab a quick one from, um, from my pre-selected ones. And then that'll probably be it for today. I don't know. I don't think Radio West Rose is streaming today. Um, they did put out a primer on the winds of winter for the Stormlands, which I'm planning on listening to. So, uh, let's see here. I've only started those series. So don't tell me spoilers. I've, I've watched up to season three of the expanse. I've watched one episode of black sales and, and, uh, and Vikings. Uh, let's see here. One from Eric Ferg. He says, who is the hooded man that confronts Theon? This is another one of his, um, one of those things where there's quite a lot of mysteries going on in Winterfell around the same time. Uh, so if you don't remember Theon, while he's walking around Winterfell and struggling between Reek and Theon, he comes across a hooded man that confronts him and essentially says like how are you still alive theon turn cloak and all these things and it's one of those um <clears throat> it's one of those things that kind of jolts theon into coming back to his to his um to his identity as theon Greyjoy and banning the reek one but people have been trying to figure out for quite a while for who that hooded man was exactly and because the curious thing about it is that there's not that many people left in winterfell who are who were still connected to the starks uh when ramsey sacked winterfell he killed quite a lot of them and then he sent quite a lot more out to um to the dreadfort to essentially die in their dungeons um and even more of them are still down in the riverlands uh with uh lady stoneheart or they died during the um ned's attempted uh, fight against the lannisters so there's really not that many people left um one theory the that's always a fun one about this is that there was no hooded man. It's Theon Durden. He made up a Tyler Durden version of himself that confronted, that confronted him like an idealized version of like, or he saw like a ghost of Rob or something like that in order to kick him into reasserting his main personality. Uh, that is definitely a fun one. There are a lot of uh, quote unquote Durden theories in a song of ice and fire. Like one of the craziest ones I've heard is that Cersei poisoned Joffrey but it was like the Cersei Durden version of herself that actually hates him. Um, 
different suggestions have also been like, uh, let's see here, Howland Reed or the Blackfish or um, Arwen, son of uh, Arwen, the horse master's son. Um, I tend to think that actually Rona Zamfir just said it, uh, House Mullen, uh, Hal Mullen, as he's known, he went south with uh, with Catelyn Stark and she gave him she put him in charge of bringing Ned's bones back to Winterfell. And he has basically disappeared off page since then. But his his uh, journey was supposed to take him back to Winterfell to put Ned's uh, bones in the crypts. And he's basically been missing since then. He knows Theon. He's aware of uh, Theon's betrayal. He knows what happened at the Red Wedding. Um, he's the last person he talked to was Catelyn Stark. So I think um, I think Hal Mullen's the one that makes the most sense. And he he also um, grew up. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't actually know how old Hal is, but um, he definitely knows Theon and has known him since he was young. So that would be a um, that would be a good reason for that. There have been other ones like Mance Raider is another popular one. I don't know about that. Um, it has it would have to be somebody probably connected more to Winterfell and the Starks that would consider Theon a traitor. I mean, a lot of people call him Theon Turncloak, but the way the hooded man talks to him seems pretty pointed. If he's really there, that would be my guess. Hal Mullen. Um, there have been other ones like uh, what's another Robert Glover, even though a lot of these, the timeline doesn't make sense. Like uh, the Blackfish would be really cool, but uh, the Blackfish is last we heard is still in the Riverlands. Same for Harwin. Uh, Howland Reed is missing, and it's I don't think he even knows Theon or who he is. Oh, he's an ant. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, that'd be my guess. Oh, it's a Shara Dane. Ah, she finally turned up. Oh, wait, is it Quaith? It's Benjen. We found him. He finally showed back up in Winterfell. Um, we, we, we cracked it. We finally did it. <laughs> Old hoodie. That's right. Old hoodie. Uh, that's a good one. Um, we solved all the mysteries. That's right, Aaron. Not every mystery is a, is a crazy, intricate one. Sometimes it's really not that many answers. So if, although I, I do like the Theon Durden theory, I think that one is fun, especially because he's kind of having like a real psychiatric break during this. And he's um, moving between two personalities and he's struggling to call himself Theon again, but sometimes he's reek. Um, we also know that during this time that Bran's messing with his head, uh, Bran appears as the weirwood. And like um, he sees Theon. <laughs> so I wouldn't put it past like an actual like Weirwood brand Blood Raven like manipulation of Theon. If it's if there was a real person, though, Hal Mullen. Like, it's actually kind of fun. One of those things where you go back and track like all the missing people from Winterfell who went south with Ned or Cat and weren't killed in the um, in Ramsey's attack. They go to some interesting places. <laughs> the hooded man is Ramsey. Oh, Oh, God, no. I, I think Theon would be unable to not. Well, what's the right way to say this? Theon <laughs> has such a thing about Ramsey. If it was Ramsey in like any way, he would like disarray react to it. So I don't think that's him. But that would be sadistic. Uh, let's see here. See if I missed anything. Um, sometimes a cigar is a penis. Wow. Wow. That's an that's an answer. Uh <laughs> Uh, Laura seven and says he may be compared to Tolkien. He's not nearly as educated. So loved a dude. That's the random fan. Yeah. The thing about, uh, the, uh, how could you feed a child with like, um, like goat milk or something like that? He is, he's not a scholar. He doesn't, 
again, yeah, I agree. I love George, but Tolkien was legitimately like spending all of his time in university studying, writing books about like language and stuff like that. Um, George is really just like a big fantasy sci-fi fan who's uh, people have done a lot of work in like showing exactly how his ideas about like medieval culture and the things he's talking about in these in these books is largely based on pop culture and not like reality. Um, And that's not like a dig against George. It's just one of those things to temper your theories about what he's talking about. Um, he's a very well-read nerd and he knows quite a lot, but a lot of it is based in popular culture. Uh, oh, Lady Rosalie Valarin, whose early Death and Winds winner would shock me the most? Davos. If Davos dies or, and the Winds winner, I'd be shocked by that. I don't think he's, I think he's going to make it to the end. That would be the biggest shock though. Um, <clears throat> uh, yes, good call. Uh, Sasuke, dissociative of identity disorder. Identity disorder is a result of trauma and the inside printing of that. So yeah, it could be. See, everyone's shocked. Say Davos dies in the winds of winter and everyone's upset. And it's like, no, no, not Davos. Not our beautiful cinnamon muffin. How could he? He's the best. Well, that's why it would be shocking. Um, <laughs> alien Mullen. Uh, you caught us right as we're about to end. Um, you, Thaddeus Rowan, you missed all. We're about to end the stream. <laughs> uh, let's see here. I think that's going to be about it for today. Um, I'll have a real topic next time. I promise. So working. So what's coming up for me? Um, I'm going to be recording the Sand King things today or tomorrow. I'm going to do some more editing, give another pass, but that should be up this week. And then I'm going to be working on the um, Winds of Winter or Lady Stoneheart video after that or during it. Um, Other videos coming up as part of my... uh, (laughs) What is it? Uh, a patron contribution thing. I, d- I said I would make a video about Stannis where I don't just, I just don't insult him. So look forward to that. There's also going to be videos on uh, connections between Dunk and House Strong. Um, let's see here. Some stuff about the Faceless Men. I was thinking about something else. I need to write these down more. But anyway, that's what we have coming up. Um, if you enjoy my content, please make sure to like, subscribe. If you're listening on the podcast version, which I know quite a lot of you do, um, please rate and review it. Um, those things really help uh, feed the algorithms, as it were. <laughs> they love uh, they love people interacting with it in order to recommend it to others. So that really helps out. Thanks for all my patrons and the uh, super chats and the PayPal donations that people gave. Uh, let's what what question we have people answer at the end of the what should the people uh, watching back on YouTube say in the comments? Um, hmm. I think you already said, um, who do you think the wrote the pink letter? But let's change that up. Let's go for hmm. who do you think cold hands is? Yes. Answer that one in the comments. Get into a lot of arguments. And um, I think that's about it for today. I will see you guys next weekend. Look for that content coming out. And uh, you patrons, you. Uh, $5 and up level will get access to it. Uh, I will see you next week.